0: Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson.
1: Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. I am excited for you to be here because we have a great conversation coming up. This is a discussion I recently had with Marshall Kozloff, who is the Director of Outreach and Media for the Lincoln Network. And if you're not familiar with the Lincoln Network, they were founded in 2014. They're a 501c3 nonprofit. And their mission is to help bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and DC. So they work really at the intersection of technology and policy. And as you know, that's a a really important subject. We see things about it in the news all the time. Uh, I am excited because Marshall in addition to his role at Lincoln is also a media fellow at the Hudson Institute. He was a researcher on PBS's firing line with Margaret Hoover, and he has his own podcast. He co-hosts the Realignment podcast with Sagar and Jetty. And I have heard Marshall interview all kinds of really interesting people. Uh, Marco Rubio, uh, Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance, all kinds of different people. And I'm always impressed with the questions that Marshall asks and the follow ups. But one of the things I've noticed is Marshall knows a lot about the history of media, about how technology has affected it. And you get that when you hear him ask questions. But I thought it would be really cool to actually have Marshall be the person who was being interviewed, so we could get to hear, at some length, what Marshall knows and what he thinks about all this. So you're going to hear our conversation, and that conversation uh, is going to cover the way technology has changed, the way media from newspapers to radio to television to the internet uh, operates, and the role it plays in a free and democratic society, and how it's changed for the better and for the worse. I hope you enjoy it. was a big switch from newspapers to radio and TV, but it was not so disruptive that we questioned what we were seeing that sort of thing and then you know Al Gore comes along and invents the internet or whatever and all of a sudden we have different things like AOL we have Yahoo right and and they're gonna be news sources, but it's moving what happened on paper or what happened in TV and radio onto the internet and that's the big switch but then. That doesn't really work out, and along comes social media like Facebook, and now we can't trust the news at all because we don't know what's real and what's fake. I know that's not the right narrative of the history of news, but what, where are there points of that that are just wrong overlooking it? I mean, what, from your point of view, what does that transition look like, and what is so unique about today's environment?
0: Yeah. And what I love about your setup here is that every single thing you talked about happened, right? So like you're, 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 you're describing this in the, you know, pre in the 19th century, you have newspapers, early 20th century, you get the radio, then you get television and then the internet happens and you have all these different, you know, 1990s throwback things like AOL and a more successful version of Yahoo. That's all true. But the part that's sort of missing is the, I, what I would sort of say is two things are sort of missing here. What the most important thing that's missing is I think you have to sort of take a step back and sort of think about the job that news and media, what it serves at a deeper sort of level. Right. So on, on, on the, on the one hand, obviously entertainment is a huge thing here. Right. People are looking to be entertained. So you have the funnies and you know, the, the newspapers. You have all sorts of different things there. The internet's sort of great for that. But on the other hand, you also have information, which is sort of the key thing here, which is that people in their lives, whether it's from, you know, the baseball team scores in your local team to the stock ticker to something in the Wall Street Journal, you need information. So that entire history of the 20th century to the early 21st you just gave, the thing that was missing here is that there is ever-expanding ways of getting access to information. Um, so in the start of the 20th century, right, when you just have these newspapers, often, um, they are newspapers, you know, there's, there's multiple newspapers in a town, but at the end of the day, everything's very sort of localized and everything's very controlled. Um, Because it's actually very expensive to do this newspaper. You have to have a printing press, which is usually unionized. You need to have a whole system of delivery persons to actually get that done. You need to be able to sell to the local newsstand. You need to maybe publish twice a day. Um, And that's that whole process. So that was the most centralized. That's why it's controlled. And that's also why the news business used to be incredibly profitable. Because if, you know, let's say we set up a paper in Washington, D.C. And there's only two or three other papers, but there's millions of people who have really intense information needs. That's an excellent, you know, near monopoly business for you. Yeah.
1: Because the entry Um, cost is so high. It's so high. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And that's why rich people tend, and that's actually why newspapers were either sort of started by political parties. I think the thing that is sort of happening here is news, news is always subsidized by something. So it's either subsidized by political parties. Like this is sort of a fun fact I spoke with y'all before about, but if you look at a lot of small towns still have their newspapers, they're often be called the Des Moines Democrat or the Fairfield Republican. That old title is a remnant from a time when papers were actually just sort of organs of political parties. Um, So they were subsidizing it or it's subsidized by the local advertisers. So that's just the key thing here. It's really about, and as we, and this is sort of the last part of this answer, what then happens over the course of the 20th century. Radio, television, blogs, web forums on AOL is it's harder and harder for those people who held monopolies over news to control those monopolies. So once again, on the conservative side, once you have talk radio, you no longer have a situation in the talk radio in the 1980s after the Fairness Doctrine was taken away, you no longer had a situation where William F. Buckley's show was the only show that was conservative, There's a lot on the air. And then when you get into the internet, you have the blogging, you have the Drudge Report, you have this sort of situation where all this is freer and more open and taking us into the present day. So many of our conflicts in media are about a combination of two things. One, the lack of a business model, because without those monopolies in a world where anyone could create things, it's very, very, very hard to make money in this space. And then two, there's always fights about gatekeeping because once again, you know, there's, the, the, the gatekeepers, I think in many ways were sort of bad. I think it's, it's not a good thing that there were just poor channels and you know a bunch of big newspapers owned by the wealthy, but at the same time, that system didn't allow a lot of fake news in. And that could go sort of from either. Idea. I think both sides of the aisle would argue there's fake news in this sort of space right now. Um, you could argue that, you know, the previous system controlled for that too much, but there, there, I think there has been something lost. And that's why we see a lot of sort of debate over what truth is and a lot of debate over yeah.
1: these sort of things. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get into that and about these questions about gatekeeping. But as you talk about that, so so my Personally, when you talk about losing monopolies over the distribution, I immediately think that's a good thing because, you know, if it's less expensive, if it's easier to be a part of that, that gives us the opportunity to get so many voices. And I'm a big believer in, you know, yeah, some of it's not going to be ideal, some of it's not going to be the highest quality, but the more we have out there, the more it enables us to ensure that we're seeing all these different perspectives. But immediately, the opposite side of that, as you just described, is yeah, but then there's no control, right? It's like a free-for-all, or it could be seen as a free-for-all. I, wanna, I, I just read an article in The Economist the other day about the sort of history of objectivity in journalism. And it was referenced in one of the pieces you talked to about Walter Libman, right? So I think we have this sense, especially when we look at this kind of free-for-all um, that seems to exist as a result of particularly the Internet in terms of giving out information, There was this golden age where everything was true and we didn't have to worry about it. We could totally trust all our news sources. And you just described that newspapers early on, some of which still have names that signal this, were political tools, right? They weren't meant to be, you know, the truth with a capital T. Um, And and the references to Lippmann are about his move to react to, to yellow journalism and that kind of thing. And to say, we actually do need to introduce in newspapers, some sense of objectivity, but I think if you ask the average person they would they would say, "No, no, news media is always meant to have been about ha- has meant to have been objective right unbiased is that's that 's not accurate historically right
0: it's not it 's completely inaccurate, and I think this is what makes a this such a fascinating industry to sort of study, but also b." why I think the more you dive into it, I think a lot of preconceived notions that you've held about the world will sort of go away, which is that, and this isn't my phrasing, but this idea of objective, neutral, referee called on the middle of journalism is basically an artifact of the 1950s, AKA Mm -hmm. that sort of, that sort of idea of it. Because if you sort of 19th century, right. You know, we, we, we said this, you know, you're, you're sort of there to serve a party, you, you have, you have specific objectives into the 20th century, you have yellow journalism, which is sort of the bad version of this, where you sort of have sensationalism and, or it's, it's sort of the 19th, 20th century version of clickbait, just oftentimes the sort of the, the consequences were much more severe because I think something that doesn't really happen now is there's, I don't think there's outright lying in basically any sort of like newspaper or sort of magazine. And if it does happen, it's corrected very quickly. Mm. That's the advantage of digital ink. Uh, if we had a transcript of this episode, I said something incorrect. You could very clearly just take it out or correct it very quickly unlike for the old paper. Um, and then you had sort of the muckrakers, which were the sort of progressive. So you think of the jungle, um, about, you know, the expose about how disgusting the meatpacking industry was. That was sort of, but those were not objective people. They were not. They had. They had. They had objectives themselves. So what you sort of saw happen in the fifties, though, and this is the point about Littman, you really saw people start to say, "Hey, like, we need to be more objective than that previous version." But this is the key thing and why the discussion of business models matter. That was all established because of the business model. So, for example, back then, fifties, forties, sixties the business model for a newspaper was you sell advertisements, right? And if you're, if you're, if the person, if your main advertiser is the big department store, the Woolworths or the Macy's, Macy's doesn't want sensationalism, um, advertisers, brands, no one wants sensationalism. Uh, they want something neutral, relatively neutral. And once again, this, there's the idea of neutrality That's that's mm-hmm. of the key thing, it's, it's not as if it ever was neutral, I, I, what right. I would basically say is that. Most mainstream papers have operationally been center-left for the past century. Now, we could debate how far to the left they're going now, but the, the New York Times of the 60s was neutral, but it was definitely center-left. But that being said, there, there, at least there was this idea what they were trying to sort of work towards was that sort of middle ground thing.
1: Because um, you had to worry about upsetting what you talked about. Somebody's always subsidizing the news. In this case, advertisers are subsidizing yes. it, and they don't want something that is going to alienate their customer.
0: Yes. And that's, and that's why, and that's why the, that's why the business model is just so key here because when people, and this is why, and this is, and this is a sad thing, right? Because let's just focus on the good faith part of the neutral moderator side. That's something that's just, it just has simply gone away because it's not sustainable from a business practice. Or I think when we take a step back, I think what you, I think we need to, I'm sort of subtexting this, but I'll say it directly. There is a model for good faith down the middle news. It's basically nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I think I think there are all sorts of things. Whether you know you know it's the, it's the Associated Press, or actually I don't know if they're a nonprofit or not, but the, but the, but there's a world where you could just create neutral down the middle, just the facts news. That isn't news that anyone's basically going to pay for. Um, and if you try to use, and if you try to create advertising, um, on that sort of news, it's not going to basically go anywhere because like the last part of this story, and this is the key one, um, which has been missing from this narrative is that the thing that internet has done, and this is why the internet has destroyed the business model of not only legacy news publishers, but also digital publishers, this is Buzzfeed. This is Vox, the places that five years ago were these huge, you know, 538 with, um, Nate Silver, yep. it's that the internet has actually lowered the amount of money you could get off of advertisement. So I think about this for a second, imagine that you want to place an ad in in a newspaper in this monopoly town in the 60s, there's only two papers. So there's only two papers, let's assume there's, let's just make up that there's eight pages per paper. There are actually only 16 available slots to get your stuff into so there's there, there's scarcity so with scarcity comes really high prices if you want to get information into so let's say i'm launching a charter school if you want to get if you want to announce your charter school into your town well you better get in one of those 16 pages um and that was great for the it wasn't great for you the it wasn't great for you the advertiser because it was it meant great for the great for the seller great for a newspaper but because of the internet it basically costs nothing or you could go to Facebook or you could go to Google and it's actually a much better, much better product for you. Um, so what this has also done though, is it's made it to so this infinite advertising space. So on the internet, there's literally, there's not 16 pages. There's not a hundred pages. There are, there's a functionally unlimited amount of space that your ad could sort of go. So what that has meant is that over time, the actual amount of money you could generate through advertising has gone down. It's commoditized just in the same way that, you know, salt. Doesn't exactly sort of like bringing a lot of money because it's a commodity, relatively undifferentiated product. The same has become true of internet advertising. Mm-hmm.
1: But even within the internet model, business model for news, things have changed. I mean, the difference between maybe let's say 1920 and 1950 is maybe not, when when it comes to uh, the news, is maybe not even as big as the difference between say 2015 and 2020 in terms of shift, right? So those early internet companies, I think about, for instance, online education, right? If you look at open source or like um, MOOCs, online classroom stuff, the ones that don't succeed often are the ones that say, okay, well, here's a really good professor. Now I'm just gonna take a video mm-hmm. of that person and put them online, right? So what you're do is you're using uh, the digital space to expand that person's reach, but you haven't adapted that person's style to, I'm gonna call it a platform, um, or to the medium, let's say. Initially, did a lot of these internet news distributors say, okay, well, I'm just gonna take the old school model and I'm going to build it on advertising. But as you say, the cost of advertising goes down and it's, there's no scarcity on the space. That model business model doesn't work. You can't run the New York times on banner ads, right?
0: Yes. And that's, and that's, and that's, and that's, and that's actually where, and that's, I'm glad you brought up the New York times because it's sort of the perfect pivot, yeah. because this is one where our culture war intuitions are actually incredibly unhelpful, right? So sort of the notion of this sort of failing New York Times. Whenever people talk about the New York Times, especially on the right, it's sort of pejorative. It's they're they're too left, they're fake news. They have all these problems. The New York Times is actually now one of the most successful companies and actually American business turnarounds of the 21st century. Um, Because right now, the New York Times, you know, in 2007, they literally had to be bailed out by with a loan by a Mexican billionaire, Carlos Slim, um, because they set aside to build a big, you know, buy a big fancy office building in, in New York City, right after the financial crisis. So However, what they've done is they've completely turned themselves around what they've done. And this is the key part here, they've thrown up a paywall. So everyone who's listening, what they know is that starting in, what they might not know, but they've definitely experienced is starting in 2011, the New York Times put up a paywall saying, Hey, if you read more than, and it started much higher than five, but it sort of settled at more than five articles a month, you have to subscribe. And the way their business model basically works is anyone who hits that five, that five article paywall. If we get 10 to 12% of them to subscribe, to pay us hundreds of dollars annually, that's an amazing business model. And that's a business model that we combine combined, because once again, they still are a good, the New York Times is still a good advertiser because they still have access to a very premium audience. Yeah. So it's, so it's not as if the advertising disaster is that it's not great. Their, their advertising revenue has decreased over time as with everyone else, but they still have a decent beachhead. Um, but the key thing is that the times started charging for content. And this is where these things get controversial, mm. um, which is that. The Times charging for content in many ways is in direct opposition to what many people saw as the promise of the internet. Because the promise of the internet was, hey, it's all out there. There's information. There's no gatekeeping. There, there are literally hundreds and millions. Actually, and here's the thing too. Think about it this way: The New York Times they actually used to have a very limited audience. It was whoever they could get a paper to first thing in the morning. But now there are seven billion plus people on this planet who hypothetically could go to the new york times.com and get access to the paper. So the promise of the internet is if you throw up good advertising there, if you develop an audience, you can be able to be profitable. You could have all this information out there and everyone would sort of win. However, what people didn't account for was just an idea that the that, that stuff would commoditize over time, that Facebook and Google would actually be better competitors for ad dollars. Um, and that actually it turned out people would pay for news because yeah. there was this long-term assumption that that would never sort of happen because most of the efforts at trying to do that basically didn't work but the thing that basically just happened here is that the new york times just stumbled into basically through desperation a discovery that their legacy brand was powerful enough that there was ten to twenty, there's ten to twelve percent of the population who would subscribe, and that sort of started a nice flywheel going. So now, for example, the New York Times—they just bought Serial, the company that did that big podcast. Now they're yeah. they're, they're they're creating TV shows. They're right. hiring sort of the best journalists. There's there's you know, it, it, so it, it's it's really it's really interesting, and this is both frustrating for I think critics of the New York Times on the right, but it's also frustrating for libertarians specifically. And I don't mean libertarians in the sort of traditional DC sense; but I mean techno-libertarian who see the internet as this utopian thing because actually it turns out that not only should you probably not give away all your content for free if you're a for-profit but actually if you wall if you create a walled garden you're actually gonna make more money um so you've seen a lot of publications after the times has succeeded you see them start creating their own paywalls too
1: did the new york times prior to the internet was its business model dependent ever on subscribers or was it largely successful you know because of advertising right so it wasn't the advertisers want to reach the subscribers but in terms of the actual what you're spending the dollars on and where the revenue matters was it the New York Times largely run off of advertising revenue not subscribers so in fact the internet now has done something that is even different than you know the 30s and 40s right you have a news source that is profitable because of subscription or people willing to pay for content.
0: Yes, and there's and there's a couple of different problems that emerge from this. So, problem number one is that it appears as if I'm sure everyone who's listening has noticed you've had to sort of start subscribing to a billion different things. And that's because actually subscriptions are an excellent business model. Just sort of if you if you can basically. If you can acquire a customer, sort of the customer acquisition cost for less than their 10 year return would be, it basically, it's a great business for anyone to be in. So that's why, you know, Apple isn't, that's why Apple isn't. You know, selling you ninety nine cent songs on iTunes anymore. They're getting you to sign up for Apple Music, yeah. knowing you'll never unsubscribe. And then they right. want you to also sign up for Apple TV, which is another subscription. And eventually, they're going to bundle this together into like a Apple Prime offering. Yeah. think They have a games thing. This is this is the pivot to subscriptions everyone's doing. But here's the problem. The problem is is that it appears as if consumers have a consumers have a have a unclear but definite limit on how many things they're going to subscribe to. So the problem with this economy is people subscribe subscribe to the New York Times, they'll subscribe to the Washington Post, they'll subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. What they won't do most likely is also subscribe to their local paper. Yeah. Um, so I'm from, for example, Lake Oswego, Oregon. I subscribe to the Times, well, my, my company subscribes to the Times, but I'm not subscribing to the Lake Oswego Review. And what people also are also not doing is they're not subscribing to a regional paper. So for example, this means the Los Angeles Times is of the world. Um, the Washington Post, as anyone who lived in DC knows, used to be much more of a regional paper. Um, but now they have had to pivot away from that and just become America's politics only paper. So you've sort of seen this problem where, and, and to take a step back real quick, uh, when, when, when people first started pivoting into paywalls, the optimistic case was that people would basically get four subscriptions. So you would subscribe to a national paper, the time, you'd subscribe to the times, you would subscribe to a political paper maybe, and this and this I mean online, you would online sources, right. so not a physical, you would subscribe to a national paper. You would subscribe to a business or commerce centric paper. So for example, a lot of Wall Street Journal subscriptions are actually paid by Google's companies. That's why it's much more expensive. Um, this is also applies to Bloomberg. You would subscribe to a regional uh, sort of site and you'd also subscribe to your local site. That was the idea. It turns out that doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. People are willing to pay for one to two things and that's about it. Because once again, we're being asked to subscribe to things in all other aspects of sort of our lives. So what, so what you've just sort of seen is this winner take all market, where you have this really unfortunate situation where every single local paper, every single regional paper in this country, this also applies to the Dallas Morning News, has to compete with the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And that's, and that's, and that's disastrous because they just can't compete. I mean, what the New York Times is doing, that's why, um, I'm sure we'll get into the politics of the New York times, but let's just focus on their business side. It's brilliant. It's they, they, they're bundling it with Spotify. They're exploring gym subscriptions. They're, they're talking, integrating it with, um, Amazon prime in certain respects. They have a cooking app. There's an amazing cooking app with all these sort of recipes. They have the crossword puzzle you can subscribe to. They're actually creating in order to get millennials to start subscribing to the they are creating this new parenting app, which is just going to be this, 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 this site and section that's just for new parents. So much, much, much in the same way that Target tries to catch you as a early consumer of diapers and sort of stuff. They want to do the sort of same thing. How is your local paper, which often is having to charge comparable prices, able to compete with that? It just can't. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you're eventually going to have to see sort of happen here is you're basically going to have a situation where either two things happen. Either one, the New York Times becomes a journalism monopoly and they just extend forward and forward and forward. So a a situation that I sort of see happening um, is the New York Times eventually creates a a incredibly expanded California Los Angeles Bureau that will effectively serve as a replacement to the LA Times so it will be a. so they've actually talked so for example the Daily Podcast their incredibly successful podcast yeah. they've talked about creating hey what if we made the California Daily what if we made the New York I mean they basically have that in New York already what if they did the same thing in Texas so I think that situation well, where they just basically because the winner takes all nature of this market how much money they're making they just become this tech company that much in the same way that Facebook and Google have dominated a monopoly they will just monopolize information in this country, which I think would be a bad thing. Or two, you sort of see a situation where the news industry takes a lesson from cable, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't sort of the sexiest of topics, but it's an important one, where you sort of start these things bundling together. So you see a world where you get, hey, like, what if you subscribe to a news product and that gets you your local paper and that gets you your regional paper and it maybe gets you a national paper and a special interest paper. The,
1: The model you just described says to me, as opposed to trying to make advertisers happy, although you would make advertisers happy as much as you can because you want that revenue too. What you're really focused on is your subscriber. And if your subscriber expects or wants a certain kind of information, then it is in your best interest from the business model to provide it, right? So while you might say, well, objectivity is the ideal, if it means selling more uh, subscriptions, what I really need to do is appeal to a certain subsection of the market, right? we're um, the biggest subsection market that I can find. So maybe conservatives or uh, maybe liberals or whatever else. Uh, if, if objectivity is something we say is there ideally, but in fact the business is really running what's happening. Now I suspect you don't buy that the journalist who's writing the story is thinking about the subscriber, right? The editors, maybe the people who are running the business have to think about that. Um, But I was listening to your podcast, um, I think in the last few weeks or something, I I was listening to you talking about how things happen. And, and I'm betting you're going to say there's no sort of conspiracy at the top here to sort of push a newspaper a certain way, or I shouldn't call it a newspaper, a news distributor a certain way, right? The journalist isn't sitting there thinking, oh, I better, I better lean this way when I write it, because that's what makes subscribers happy. That's probably not happening. No.
0: I think, yeah, so I, th- I think it's interesting because I think part of what's happening here is, yeah, I, there, there, there's, there's, there's no, well, actually, no, let me take a step back. Here's where, and I don't want to say it's a conspiracy because it's actually pretty open. You've had numerous incidences where there have been large, for example, cancel the New York Times campaigns that actually in yeah. certain ways have been egged on by sort of agitati, um agitate um, re- reporters and writers within this sort of publication. So this is pretty open. And, the, and the, but the, the, so yes, uh, people are openly sort of shifting this, but I, I don't think a times writer or any writer for, for example, is really sort of thinking, I'm going to say exactly what my audience says, because this will make them happy and they'll subscribe because this is where the subscription economy versus the clickbait economy is an important thing. No one will pay for clickbait. Right, mm-hmm. So no one, there's no world where people are going to simply pay for generic 500 word op-eds that sort of just confirm like whatever you want to sort of hear. There's no world where that makes any sense for people. Uh, but that being said, people are definitely going to, so the, the bar is going to be a bit higher for a subscription product, but Part of the thing though, is that what you're doing is you're serving your audience, this is why it's not a conspiracy, right? So if you, if for example, there was this controversy at the New York times over whether they should label comments, president Trump made as racist, Yeah. you know, if your audience thinks they're racist and. Honestly, you're a reporter who's good at serving the audience. Like you probably, you probably intersect the audience, right? I think the more cynical take, this would be more cynical if they, if if reporters weren't aligned with their audience, but no, they're not. These tend to be sort of college educated upper middle-class people who are like center left to left, there's no disagreement here. They would think, wait, if I think what he said was racist and I, and if my audience thinks what he said was racist, I should say it's racist. The, The devil's advocate would say that in the long term, if the New York Times leans more into a partisan direction, they will weaken the underlying legacy brand that actually powers what they're doing. And uh, how big
1: is, how big is your audience then? Right. I mean, but it's pretty big, but here's the thing. It's pretty big. You only yeah. need
0: 10 to 12%, right? You, and this is the thing, which That's is, this is, this, this is the thing. It's huge. It's, it's huge, yeah. right the, the New York times right now. They, I think they just picked up 700,000 subscribers during COVID-19. That's incredible. Their, their their goal is to get to 10 million subscribers to, by 2025, they're, they're they're nearing 7 million and it's just 2020 during a, during an economic recession. Yeah. It's it's an excellent business model, so that's why it's very. It's it's the, the problem that people who are defending objectivity and the people who are on the center left who are trying to do these sort of philosophizing to the journalism ideal is that a once again there if we sort of take a longer time frame there is no journalistic ideal. There there's there's there are shifting business models that present different outcomes, but also frankly I'm not sure they have a particularly compelling case. I'm not sure, and this is where it's hard, right? You know, as right. someone who's center right, you know, eh. The New York Times, they actually probably can be pretty partisan. I, I actually think that that audience wants to hear that. And over time, that's, that's okay. And then that's sort of, that's sort of the reality there. I, I don't think there's much of a market for a perfectly down-the-middle crib from the 1950s New York Times. And that's bad. That's not good for discourse. Uh, but that's just why the whole question of people have to seriously think about, well, hey, like, is this something that should be a nonprofit? Is this something that could be this, this, or that? That's the key thing here.
1: Let's stay on this in terms of the New York Times. You mentioned the piece about culture. So it's been in the last, what, two weeks. Um, Barry Weiss resigned very publicly from the New York Times um, and her resignation letter was published. And and there was the uh, controversy over the Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times and the op-ed, um, the, and I don't remember his name, eventually wound up resigning or was let go, right? The Guide the head of it. Um, in Barry Weiss's resignation letter, she says, I was brought in to, uh, I'm paraphrasing, she, I was brought in to help something that was clear in the 2016 election that the New York Times didn't serve and didn't represent a, a significant part of the American population and to balance that out effectively. And there's no place for that here. The the papers, business doesn't, the the operations do not support it. Um, I'm being attacked. You shouldn't have to be brave or courageous to be a centrist at the New York Times. I want to pair all this up with what we've just talked about in terms of the business model and objectivity. So on the one hand, we've got people who take that as another signal about cancel culture, right? That there are... There are, there's retribution for being too far outside the, the correct point of view, right? You can lose your job, you can be attacked. When you talk about the business model, and we talk about the history of objectivity and journalism, I think there's also somebody who could come back and say, well, I don't know what they told her when they hired her, but in terms of the business model itself, the New York Times, based on everything you just said, isn't required in any way and maybe shouldn't even be expected to be balanced or to be moderate and her complaint or her objection is to is a is an hr kind of complaint it's not one about journalism
0: yeah i i I really like the way you sort of phrase that because i think i think it gets to sort of the key tension here which is that yeah the new york times yes the new york times says you know all the news that's fit to print you know, truth, but I mean, that's not what they're really doing. And here's the other problem too, for the times they're a publicly traded company, they have obligations to shareholders. Um, so they're not required to do any of this. And frankly, nor frankly, should they, I, I, I think that, and once again, I, I, I definitely have heard and know that, you know, Barry Weiss in many ways wasn't treated with kindness or respect. So I'm really not trying to sort of minimize or victim blame, but I'm sort of, stop. we're talking about the dynamic here. It's unclear. No, it's not unclear. We do know, but New York Times readership has no interest in sort of Barry Weiss's vision of the New York Times. Um, you know, that, that they, they aren't interested in the intellectual dark web. They're not interested in sort of like unheard voices of that sort of perspective. Uh, is that hypocritical? Is that annoying? Yes, right. But. If you think that's hypocritical or annoying then you're probably not a New York Times subscriber right. and they don't owe anything to you. And actually right. they actually owe something to their subscribers who are paying them a decent amount of money and they're forming lifelong relationships with them. They definitely owe something to their owners and stockholders. So that's why there's just this going to be this perpetually losing battle by the very wisest of the world because just as people who complain about it's so terrible that Facebook and Google destroyed our business model, but you know, just as they're hearkening back to this previous era, it's never coming back, I think what's, I think Barry Weiss's complaints are intellectually serious and we should engage with them, but on a business level, they're just not, they're, they're just not, they're not, they're not real, they're not actionable because once again, if the readership doesn't like, and I don't think the readership particularly liked Barry Weiss, she's not, she's not what they were sort of looking for, you know, it's, it's sort of tough to be a sort of I'm trying to find the way for a sort of, it's hard to be a heterodox centrist in today's media space, right? I don't think conservative audiences would like what Barry Weiss is doing either in many respects. Um, So, but once again, though, this goes to business models. That's why, what is cool about the internet is it is increasingly possible for Barry Weiss and like-minded people, whether that's, you know, uh, Andrew Sullivan who left New York magazine on the same time, yeah. they can actually come together and then actually build out their own sort of products. So for example, there's this site called Substack that lets anyone create a newsletter that you could charge money for. Um, Barry Weiss could create her own newsletter. And if she got, you know, a decent number of people, I mean, what's crazy is if she got a thousand people to pay $10 a month. Like that's actually a real salary. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually sort of a real thing. And I guarantee you that there are not just a thousand, but there are actually tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who would actually find the idea that we need a place for heterodox centrism to exist. Like that's a, I, I'd actually bet that's a pretty wealthy audience of people. It's actually variable doable to that. Like you create a, you create a podcast as we're doing right now. Yeah. You could have, a, you could have a newsletter. It's very doable to sort of create that. So that's, so that's. So yeah, it, 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 it's tough because there are many things that we're going to lose, but that's why this is sort of an opportunity to sort of build what sort of comes next here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we know that the peop- there are people, Katie Herzog did that. Um, you know, there are, there are examples of people who are now making a living doing better than they were as journalists by doing exactly what you just described. Okay. Let's talk about, I know this is a whole subject, but uh, let's talk about social media yeah. and about how social media changes again um, or affects that business model and what social media is doing, both in terms of being able to target uh, specific segments of audiences, advertising dollars, that kind of thing. But also it's clearly in so many people's mind, really the culprit when it comes to fake news, right?
0: Yeah, and I I think, and this is what's hard here, and this is why I think the right, is social media is incredibly nuanced. Uh, because for example, right, a lot of people on the right really don't like Facebook, but what's so fascinating about Facebook is if you actually look at what's the best performing content on Facebook, it's, it's actually conservative. Uh, and what's interesting about that, and that goes back to the business model idea, which is that actually, if you, if you're, if the, if the fair critique of 20th century media is that it was overly gatekept and many voices, right? Not just sort of like racial minorities, but also like conservatives were kept out of that. The internet's great because the internet means anyone can sort of do things. Um, so that's actually why it's not surprising that on a platform like Facebook, there's actually a flourishing, a real renaissance of conservative news and opinion, you know, Candace Owens is getting 70 million views on a video, um, you know, a video—it was anti—it was it was an anti-George Floyd video during the protest, but it got seventy million views, and that's definitely—I don't agree with her take on that, but that's definitely something that wouldn't be there in the mainstream media, um, and it's something that Facebook enabled it to be shared and it's sort of discourse. So that's why I think conservatives need to sort of take a step back when they sort of like attack social media, which is that. Liberals bring this point up, but it's also a very true one at a theoretical level. It is actually definitely true. I think despite any incidences of bias, like I definitely think it's true that Facebook has bias within it. I definitely would bet that the content moderation team is 99.9% liberal. It is right, you know, it's, it's, it's revealing that it seems as if most of like the big mistaken ins- instances of content moderation tend to go against the right. Like There really is like structural bias in these companies, but operationally it's still a good thing if your objective is getting conservative thought out there. Um, so I think, I think that's just like a very relevant thing, right? President Trump, right? President Trump was able to use Twitter to get his message out there in a way that he really couldn't have been. And that's part of, and that's part of a way that a popular, you know, like think of Ross Perot in 1992. He had, to, he had to, to get in front of people. He had to get TV time and he was a billionaire, so he could do it, but he had to literally like book hours of TV and do these long-winded, you know, uh, sticks and graphs, but Trump could just tweet. He could just tweet and he could tweet for free. Um, so I think conservatives really need to think structurally about, and once again, I'm not saying don't focus on bias, but I think just focusing on bias and not really thinking about, would we rather live in the world before social media, or would we rather live in the world after social media. We'd actually obviously much rather live in the world after social media. Then we should then take that to sort of approach what we sort of think about these things, because I think if you sort of approach this idea that social media is the enemy of the right, I think you're solely mistaken. Actually, I think you miss the fact that if you actually look Sort of pause real quick, but I think something that always frustrates me is when people sort of frame the backlash against big tech and social media as a sort of bipartisan thing, because it isn't. Um, the left has a critique of social media and the right has a critique of social media, but they're very different. The right's critique. Uh, and, and, and I think the rights critique, I think both critiques are correct in many ways, but the rights critique is that, hey, Facebook censors too much. There is too much gatekeeping. There is too much, bi- there is too much bias. Voices aren't able to be heard. If you look at the left's critique, the left's critique is actually there isn't enough, there isn't enough um, I don't want to even say, I'm trying to get the good faith version of both these critiques, but right, right. the last critique is that actually Facebook isn't gatekept kept enough. There's all this hate speech. There's all this harassment on Twitter. We don't, you know, there, there, there are, there are things that are said that are untrue. Um, and Facebook had this issue, you know, sort of post, you know. 15, 16 in, in, you know, in, in, in Burma, Myanmar, where there were these stories that Rohingya Muslims were murdering people. So then people, so then like native um, Burmese people started murdering Muslims in villages because of literal fake news. So like that's actually a clear case where you actually do have this huge moderation problem. And I think Facebook has largely solved those problems, but you just have these two diametrically opposed critiques. Uh, and you really have to recognize that they're different. I think the right should be very cautious when they sort of try to embrace this sort of broader attack, because they should recognize that if things don't go their way, as I bet they likely would, they'd actually be very sort of harmful for um, what they are saying they value.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's like a lot of things. We want it to be one way or the other. We want a very simple explanation that can resolve all the problems that we see with it, regardless of what side we're on. Right. And, and just even in talking about, um, more conventional or traditional news distribution, it's not a very, it's not an uncomplicated story. The business model matters, all of these things too. And the same is going to be true when we talk about social media as well. Um, Just, I know there's a lot we could talk about with social media. However, I guess the last thing I'd like to talk about uh, as we think about news distribution and that um, even today, we're seeing that um, some tweets and posts have been removed from uh, President Trump's campaign and um, from President Trump about uh, coronavirus information, right? So about children being almost immune. And, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm exactly quoting it because I'm not. Um, but it, that was the gist of it, that both Facebook and Twitter, I think, removed um, Posts, and it was particularly, it wasn't the first time Twitter had done it, but maybe the first time that Facebook did it. As we're thinking about the election, we're thinking about the campaign, which now we're starting to think more about again, um, and particularly in the face of everything that's gone on with the global pandemic and all that. I mean, I think if we imagine that we're talking to somebody on either the left or the right about, we hear this all the time from people in our audience, like it's just hard to know what to trust. Um, you know, what should we be doing? What's the responsible behavior on social media, but beyond social media, I suppose, news distribution generally, what's the responsible behavior when we take in information, given what we know about the business model and how those things are operating for us to be both informed and not, not ratchet up um, conflict, I suppose, between ourselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, so several, so several things, one, um, in terms of the removal of president Trump stuff. Um, I think this is an incredibly frustrating issue just because it, it, it's, it's frustrating because on one level, I think the platforms are overreaching. I think that Facebook had actually done a pretty good job of not reaching too far into this. I don't think here's, here's the way I'll put this. if, if so many, it seems to me as if, from my perspective, a lot of the content moderation decisions, especially around the president have been driven by things that aren't actually about facts. So for example, it would be one thing, this is a, this is not harmful, but let's say president Trump said, the sky is blood red and Twitter said, no, Mr. President, it's, it's, it's blue. That isn't what most of these content moderation situations look like. Um, it was, you know, one of the things on Twitter It was, it was the ballot, it was the ballot initiative thing. And as, as, as we, as we all know, as you know, think tank denizens, you know, even say a study saying anything, um, and, and, and very quickly it's, it, it seems as if those claims verge quicker into gatekeeping that reflects the frustration of people speaking about things that like the, the that moderators don't agree with. Um, I'm from Oregon. I, you know, we've been vote by completely vote by mail. Um, since 96, so I've literally only voted by mail. I'm pro, I'm pro, I'm pro mail. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think there's an issue. I think conservatives are a little too paranoid on this issue, but like that being said, like, I don't think what president Trump said was inherently deeply offensive and actually I disagree with it, but I don't think it should have been fact-checked, um, especially because it opens up all these complicated ideas. Like for example, why aren't you fact-checking members of the Chinese communist party when they're spreading misinformation, disinformation during COVID-19. And then at that level, if you're not fact-checking them, aren't you basically endorsing them? And you're saying if it hasn't been, you know, if on Twitter, it's like retweets don't, act, don't equal endorsements. In this idea, it's wait, do, does a lack of fact-checking equal endorsement in this case? So it just opens this can of worms. And I think if, and I think if the issue were outright lies in the sense of the Rohingya, that'd be different, but I don't think there's that much outright lying. It's the same thing in the media. I do not think President Trump world leaders are outright lying in a way that can clearly, by all by all everyone's agreement, that would just not be true. Um, very rarely has President Trump tweeted something like, "Here is a fact." Every if, if President Trump tweeted the following, every single ballot vote by mail election in the year 2019 was stolen and fake. So that's verifiable. That'd be different. But he's saying, oh, this is open to corruption and it's not good. That, that's an opinion. And at that point, why are you, why, why are you censoring that opinion? It just op- it opens a can of worms. Um, so it, it, it's, and this is sort of the problem with sort of the conflict issue, which is that during sort of the Trump era and during the hyperculture wars, it's basically impossible for people to sort of stand down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we would not, we we just weren't having these debates during the Obama presidency and during the Clinton and the the George W. Bush years. Obviously there was no social media to the same degree during Clinton and Bush too, but it just wouldn't have been the same sort of issue um, because the president leans into these culture war battles oftentimes successfully. But it also just means that companies that dive into that, I think are setting oftentimes bad precedents. um, And that's very distressing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we all need to um, recognize the platform, recognize what's going on and do what we would have done with yellow journalism, right? Like use judgment about it.
0: Yeah, we we, 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 we have to, we're honestly asking a lot of people um, and we just, and this is, and once again, I mean, I, as, as I said, I'm a center right. I work at, a, you know, two think tanks. So I very much am comfortable saying I'm obviously operationally part of any sort of like establishment class of DC. But I think what people like me have to recognize. And I think we shall have our own various lessons for 2016, but my lesson is, oh, there's a whole lot of people out there who just don't agree with me. And as a result of the way politics and democracy and being, being in a republic works, you have to understand you're gonna have to live with those people. So I think we just have to accept the idea that the era of Walter Cronkite declaring that the Vietnam War was lost, so now we're all ready to pack. It's over. It's over. In many ways, it wasn't good. If, you know, the critique of the sixties was that we didn't, If the critique of pre-civil rights America was we didn't allow persons of color to sort of speak in our voices. Well, look, like an issue in the 2010s. And once again, these are not at the same level, right? Like a conservative whose Twitter uh, shadow ban is not the same thing as a sort of civil rights activist, but the issue in the 2020s is that a whole portion of our society does not trust that big institutions are on their side. I think they're inherently biased against them and something that this is sort of a like social justice worry idea that I got back at the university of Oregon, but I, it, it's actually meaningful for me. It's like, if someone's offended, it's not your job to tell them that they shouldn't be offended. Um, I mean that on a personal level, right? So if, if, if I, if I, if I call you a disparaging name and you tell me like, Hey, like that offended me, I shouldn't be like, well, actually you shouldn't feel that way because actually what I meant was this, this or that. No, it's like. If conservatives feel that like tech companies have it out against them or that that the situation is biased against them, obviously we can have a nuanced discussion about like, you know, like I said, well, actually like, let's focus on how your voice is amplified. That's one thing, but that should not trend into denying the feeling of distrust, which I think too often center right to center left sort of critiques of the tech bias, because so once again, I don't really believe it operationally, but too often it's this sort of condescending, well, no, you can't actually felt like you're biased against. It's not my job. It's not your job. It's no one's job to tell people how they should feel about things. Um, we can advise people how they should sort of react. So for example, what I would say is, hey, by the way, don't leave Facebook conservative. Raise, like raise heck about it. You know, if you were, if, for example, like, and what's funny is when these situations really are like bad, they used to be resolved to conservative things. So for example, when that pro-life video got censored on Twitter and Facebook, it was put back on when the Federalist had its controversy with Google The Federalists didn't get demonetized because people were talking about it. So what I'd say is, hey, like, I I get that you think these things are biased. I actually agree with you in a bunch of ways, but don't leave the platform because that's where the new public square is. And actually, this public square is very useful for us, aka the 70 million views that Candace Owens gets. But what you should do is you should organize, you should talk to your legislator. There should be this conversation about bias.
1: Awesome. So, Marshall, if people want to follow what you're doing, tell us about the places that they can follow it.
0: You can find me at too many places. Um, <laughs> place number one is obviously the Lincoln Network. It's an organization that sort of is working in Silicon Valley in D.C. to sort of look at all these big problems that we're talking about. Because I think what's the key thing that's funny here about this discussion is that every single issue has basically related to the intersection of technology and politics. So that's what we do at Lincoln. It's really, really super relevant. It's great. Other place is the Realignment Podcast where I talk about this. Um, one to two times a week with my co host Sagar and Jenny at the Hill. Quick shout out to Sagar. He was listed by the Trump campaign as a prospective debate moderator um, last night. So that's very cool for him. So you can see us sort of talk about these issues with a variety of folks. It's, it's, it's really great. It's, uh, I love podcasting, it's been a great conversation.
1: covered a lot of stuff in our conversation. And as I mentioned, Marshall had sent me some articles to read in advance of our discussion. We'll link to those in the show notes. And they largely talk about many of the details of the business models that Marshall mentioned. But look, there was so much that was new to me in our conversation and in reading those articles. And I'm really grateful for Marshall's knowledge and his careful thinking about them. When I think back about that conversation. I think about the things that I will take away from it, particularly the things that I will apply in my own discussions with family and friends, but also in my own behavior. I I think the most significant one is going to be about social media. I am definitely someone who could be uh, accused of being pretty down on social media. I worry about its impact on our civil discourse. I worry about the kind of information that is uh, put out on social media. I worry about the way we consume it. And I think it's important, the question that Marshall asked, do we want to live in the world before there was social media or the world after social media? And even though we don't get a choice about that, I think his point that if we look at on balance, the good things, including offering platforms to people who otherwise would not have them or offering a platform at a scale that otherwise would not exist. We have to recognize there are plenty of positive things that have come out of social media, but like anything else, it's not perfect and it's got drawbacks and it's got costs. I think for me, the next time I think about maligning social media or talking about how much I worry about, I'm probably gonna pause a beat and I'm gonna think about what Marshall said. And I think I'm gonna remember that it doesn't exist in a vacuum, that the business model matters a lot for social media, just as it does for the New York Times or another newspaper. And that I personally have a responsibility in the way that I interact. But importantly, regardless of our feelings about social media, it is in many ways the public square now. And if we leave the public square, then our voices are not going to be heard. So, yeah, it's a challenge sometimes to be engaged in discussion on social media, but there's probably value in it if no one else is voicing the opinions that you have. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll be with us next time. Thank you for listening to this
0: episode of the Civil Squared Podcast where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.